Hello, friends. Greg Kokel here. And I, uh, gosh, I got the bearded beast got me chuckling just a few moments ago because he's doing a little boogaloo and the music comes up and, you know, uh, you, uh, you know, that's pretty good. He, he's not so bearded, though, right now. You trimmed. For me, okay. Well, I, I think it looks better right now. I can never figure out, like Alan and Tim, you guys, you know, have these shorter beards, and it never seems to get shorter or longer. It always stays kind of the same exact length. Now, yours got longer, and of course, you worked on that. Thank you. And uh, but um, uh, and maybe this is your compensation for the other side of your head. Is that right? Well, I heard one guy say, you know, bald people don't lose their hair. It just goes underground and comes out their nose and ears, you know, kind of thing. Well, all right. On to more sublime issues. We usually when um, something is going on that I'm a part of, I just give you a quick uh, date and event. And we'll do that with other callers, or rather other speakers, and we let you know where the events are at. But once in a while, something happens, especially if it's in Southern California. We want to spend more time and tell you about it, partly because we've got a lot of listeners in Southern California. And we've got a great conference coming up in a few weeks in SoCal um, that virtually all of our STR team will be attending and speaking at, along with a whole bunch more. And I have asked Lanej Garrison to join us to tell us about this. And Lanej, welcome to the show, first of all. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And when I was at this very event in the desert, Mm -hmm. by Palm Springs, Desert Apologetics, um, that's where you and I met the first time last year. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. And she's got a big smile on her face, so that's a good sign. Mm-hmm. And now you're a featured speaker for Reality, and we're entering our second half of our season with Reality coming up in February mm-hmm. at at, uh, at Dallas, and looking forward to seeing you there. But tell us a little bit about this project that you've been involved with for quite a while called Desert Apologetics. So I met Allie um, a few years ago. She heard me uh, speaking at Biola and she said, you do apologetics and you live in the desert. This is such a rarity to be out here and doing apologetics. And and she got me in touch with the conference and what, what she was doing and really sharing her vision for the conference, which is she wanted to create a space for students to like ask tough questions. Like, what are the things that are really bothering you about who is God and what do you believe and why do you believe what you believe, as well as she wanted to connect apologists with other young apologists. So not only is it a place where they can ask questions and learn about what it is that you believe and what is your worldview, but then how can you connect with other people that are doing that? How, like she loved the fact mm-hmm. that you and I connected and that I connected with Jay Warner mm-hmm. Wallace and, and just kind of bringing this community together as we're all doing the same thing, but in our unique ways and gifting. So that's kind of how, mm-hmm. that's how I got involved with her and sure. catching on the vision. Yeah. Well, you know, usually we think of, of a Southern California conference, we're thinking about Biola, we're thinking about South Orange County, like reality or something like that. You're out in the desert. Yes. <laughs> You're Palm Springs area, yes. specifically Indian Wells, but that's Palm Springs. And um, so it's, it's, uh, it's, it, there's usually not, big events out there for people to go to. And it's it's great that you're doing this. Now, um, you've got a lot of talent that you're having. In fact, this isn't just a, your Friday night, all day Saturday kind of conference. Correct. This is actually starting on, let me see, it's actually starting on Thursday. Correct. Is that mm-hmm. right at noon? Thursday, February. Tell us what the schedule's like. So it starts on Thursday. I'm going to look at, make sure I get my notes right. Uh, February 29th. 
And we come out the gate mm-hmm. running with Craig Hazen. Uh, he's beginning to talk about uh, prayer and discernment. And the name of the conference that is anchored, and it's she calls it anchored mostly an apologetic conference because we answer a lot of different questions. And that, that's really what I love. Mm-hmm. So um, it's Craig Hazen is speaking. I'm speaking on discerning spirits. Alyssa Childers is speaking on the deconstruction of Christianity. Um, right. Craig Hazen is speaking mm-hmm. again on Friday. John Noyes, you know him. Sean McDowell is speaking. You're speaking. Alan is speaking. Robbie's speaking. Um, and Jeannie Jones is speaking and doing question and answer. So it's an amazing opportunity for anyone, even if you don't know what apologetics is. That's what everyone always asks me. Well, what is it? What is why do you guys do that? Are, am I saying sorry? That's what everyone says. Why am I apologizing? Yeah. <laughs> Say, no, no, yeah, it's, yeah. you're not saying sorry, but you're thinking about what is your worldview? What is it that you believe about who God is and the existence of God? And how do all of these ideas interact to create your worldview? And then mm-hmm. how do you live? Like, how do you combat the culture and the norms? And so this is a great place to learn about some of these mm-hmm. discussions that are going on and to gain knowledge and mm-hmm. to be encouraged about your faith and um, just, and get questions answered. Sometimes the, we just don't have a place to ask. Well, Mick, mm-hmm. plus we're mixing it up with a lot of people that are not only conferees, but um, this is a three day conference. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to get there on Friday morning. I don't speak until Saturday afternoon, but I want to sit in on some of the events too. Sure. My own team members mm-hmm. want to mix it up with other people. And this is kind of the spirit. I was there last year, mm-hmm. had a fabulous time mm-hmm. and uh, got to meet a lot of friends that I've worked with before. Uh, Lee, Lee Strobel was on board last yes. time around, I think. And uh, we had we had a great time. The same thing uh, you have squared away for this year with Elisa Childers and Sean McDowell and Clay Jones and Craig Hazen. And you're going to be speaking, Linez, John Noyes, Robbie Lashua, Ellen Schlieben from our team yes. along with me. This is going to be a really great time, and I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, once again, February 29th. That's a that's a Thursday, Correct. and it starts at noon, starts right? right? So at noon. if they if they're okay, so if they want more information, how do they get registered? How do they get the details? All of that online. So they can go to desertapologetics.com and they click on the link, type it in, and you get all the registration details. It'll be at Southwest Church has opened up there auditorium for us. So we're really blessed that they've allowed us to use their space, yeah. um, which really is a big blessing for us because we're at a more central location um, and not just uh-huh. we we're a little bit further out, but now we're expecting, you know, a lot more people to come because we're more centrally located right near Indian Wells, right? Actually right next to uh, Indian Wells Tennis Garden, which is great. So, oh, so yeah, so they go to the link and click on, and I know I'm sure you guys will have the link available as well. Mm-hmm. Yes, we will. And and uh, Indian Wells is for people who maybe not be entirely familiar. This is part of the whole uh, Palm Springs kind of uh, complex of town. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of where it is, mm-hmm. right there at the base of that wonderful escarpment from uh, San Jacinto, mm-hmm. that big giant 10,000 foot mountain there that offers the backdrop there. Mm-hmm. And lots of great people are going to be there. Um, thank you for spending some time with us, Lineage. Thank you. Um, and I'm really looking forward, not just only to this weekend coming up February 29th through March 2nd for this event, but also 
later on. Uh, well, actually, we're going to see you earlier than that. I'm going to see you before that. That's right. When we do um, our reality yes. in Dallas, I guess, the week or so before that. Yes. So so we got a lot of time to spend together here, Lanej, and I'm looking forward to this great event coming up in, uh, in Indian Wells, February 29th through March 2nd, the Anchored Conference with Desert Apologetics. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me. I look forward to seeing you soon. Yes. All right. That's Lenez Garrison. Uh, she's on our team for reality coming up uh, in uh, we, we start our spring term mid-February. I'm looking for the exact dates right here, but you guys know what it is, what those are. And uh, um, I have something else I want to talk to you about uh, that is uh, well, it's just a little kind of a crazy thing that's come up. And... Um, it's making its rounds a little bit on the Internet, and it's just uh, a kind of blunder spoken by a good man. And um, so I thought maybe I'd reflect on this a little bit and uh, offer my thoughts on this if you've heard about it. Now, the good man that I'm talking about is Alistair Begg. I have a tremendous amount of respect for Alistair Begg. I actually did an event with him Almost 20 years ago now, we had dinner together, we had breakfast together, we stayed at the same hotel, and uh, it was just him and me pretty much at the event. Um, but I have um, benefited from his teaching for years and uh, have nothing but good to say about him, all right? The thing is, about two months ago, he made a recommendation on the air that has stirred up some controversy, and I want to talk about what he said. And just keep in mind, there's no um, there's no scandal here or anything like that. But it got people wondering about why he gave the advice he gave regarding this particular issue and what's the best way to think about the thing he was speaking concerning. And I think I'll give my point of view on some of those things, and then I'm going to offer also um, offer a kind of generalized takeaway. Okay, <clears throat> and the circumstance was Alistair Begg, uh, I think, on his own program, or at least on his channel, Truth for Life, talking about fielding questions that he gets of various kinds, and some have to do with the controversial issues about transgender, same-sex marriage, and the like. And so his... He, he starts out by acknowledging, from a perspective of understanding God's grace, that with regards to anyone that we find difficulties with morally, we need to remind ourselves that there but for the grace of God go I, which is what he said, and which is true. Um, we, we're, even with the grace of God, we are, we are each pretty bad. Uh, and probably worse than we think we are. Okay, so that's a nice qualifying remark before his comments that were to follow. Now, what I'm going to offer here now is I'm going to read what he said, and interspersed in what he said is conversations with others. I think it'll be pretty clear as I read it. But here's what he said, and I quote, We field questions all the time, that go along the lines of, my grandson is about to be married to a transgender person, and I don't know what to do about this. I'm calling to ask you to tell me what to do, which is a huge responsibility. 
In a conversation like that just a few days ago, and people may not like this answer, but I asked the grandmother, does your grandson understand your belief in Jesus? Yes. Hmm. Does your grandson understand that your belief in Jesus makes it such that you can't countenance in any affirming way the choices that he has made in life? Yes. I said, well then, okay. As long as he knows that, then I suggest you go to the ceremony, and I suggest that you buy them a gift. Oh, she said, what? She was caught off guard. I said, well, there's the thing. Your love for them may catch them off guard, but your absence will simply reinforce the fact that they said, these people are are what I always thought, judgmental, critical, unprepared to countenance anything. And it's a fine line, isn't it? It really is. People need to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling, but I think we're going to take that risk a lot more if we want to build bridges into the hearts and lives of those who don't understand Jesus and don't understand that he is a king. Close quote. So all of what I just offered there was exactly as Alistair Begg offered it himself from his program. That was an exact quote. I I was careful to get the exact quote. I didn't want to paraphrase because I didn't in any way want to mischaracterize uh, what he said. Now, this has created a bit of a kerfuffle, and I uh, listened to James White and his response, and John Harris and his response, and and Michael Grant. John Harris has uh, the Conversations That Matter podcast. And... um, I, I, all of the, all of those individuals were gracious and generous and charitable, but all rather shocked by the advice that Alistair Begg gave that uh, Christians should attend, in this case, a transgender wedding, as a witness of love to the non-Christians there. Now, if you listen carefully to the quote, it it almost sounded like there was a contradiction built in there, and I still wonder about this. Because what he said was, does your grandson understand that your belief in Jesus makes it such that you can't countenance in any affirming way the choices that he has made in life? Yes, she said. Oh, okay, then go to the service and buy a gift, which strikes me as the exact opposite advice that would follow from the question he just asked the grandma. If your, your, your grandson understands that you couldn't countenance affirming in any way the choices he's made in life, then you can't go to this because it looks like you're affirming it. But he said just the opposite. So I'm confused about that apparent contradiction. There's also confusion about the very nature of the wedding itself. This isn't a gay marriage. This is, as he characterized it, a transgender marriage. Now, what a, a transgendered person is a person who is one physical sex, but um, but um, lives and acts as if that individual is the opposite sex. That's their gender ideation. So it might be a woman— who believes she's a man trapped in a woman's body, so she now lives as a man. 
So if that woman were transgender, she would be dressed as a groom is dressed. And if she's marrying a man who is not transgender, then there are two grooms standing at the altar, even though there's a man and woman there. I mean, that might be the circumstance. It might be that that um, you have two men standing at the altar, but one is a transgender woman, and so you have a man and then another a man wearing a suit, a tux, and another woman wearing—and a woman—I'm sorry. You have a man wearing a suit and a tux, and you have another man wearing a dress because he's transgender. So it's not entirely clear what we're, we're even looking at here. And so that's part of the confusion. And in fact, even James White and John Harris both said, I'm not even sure what the details are here. I don't think those details matter. Now, for a long time, we have adopted a position regarding same-sex marriage that it would not be appropriate for a Christian to attend a same-sex wedding. And the reason is very obvious, that a wedding is a place where you bring affirmation and celebration to the relationship as it is, and an encouragement for the the durability of that relationship. And if that relationship is a relationship that is deeply offensive to God, how can you celebrate that? Well, you could be loving to them. Well, yeah, but you don't have to be loving by going to a celebration of something you can't in good conscience celebrate. What you can do, and we've recommended this for a long time, is turn down the invitation, don't go to the event, but later on make arrangements to visit the couple. So you can affirm their, your love for them and the relationship that you're trying to build with them and to hopefully have a spiritual impact in their lives, but you're not also celebrating the event. Now, Alan has been—we've had a lot of talks about this over the years and have come to our conclusion, partly for the reason I just gave you, can't celebrate what God abhors, I guess it would be an appropriate way of putting it. We can't even appear to that, even for the sake of building a bridge, or what we think will be building a bridge, all right? Um, So uh, we can build bridges in other ways to that couple. In a loving way, we can't celebrate what we ought not celebrate. Now, the difference in this case is it's not clear that what's happening in the transgender situation is whether you have a de facto gay wedding, two men marrying each other, and one of them uh, ideating as a female. So if you were standing there in the audience, what you'd see is a bride and a groom. But you'd know differently, and everybody knows differently, because they know the couple. So there are actually a number of different combinations that might be represented uh, with a cha- in a transgender wedding. And Amy has made the point in our discussions about this that if it is a, a transgender male and a actual male, then what's going on is a, a man is marrying a woman who is posturing in a sense or posing or ideated as a male. So you have a man and a woman getting married. That would be a real marriage. My point wasn't 
to strain at that particular detail, but to ask, even if it were not a a gay marriage and the two individuals were opposite sex, no matter how they happen to be presenting themselves at the moment, it still would not be right to participate in a celebration. Okay? And to put it simply, and we talked a lot about this, but where I landed was, you, a marriage is a celebration. Is this the kind of union that you, as a Christian, could celebrate? A transgendered wedding. And my response or my thought is, this is not what God has in mind for weddings or marriage, regardless of the sex. What is being offered is a distortion or a uh, a corruption of what God has in mind, um, and an actually kind of a mockery of what God has designed. Now, this is Greg Kokel talking. This is my opinion. This is a, these are the reasons why I couldn't celebrate even a transgender wedding when the bride and the groom were opposite sexes, or the groom and the groom, or the bride and the bride, however it uh, washes out, if they were opposite sexes. So there still would be kind of like, well, it's a guy and a gal getting married. Nevertheless, the way it's done is championing something as good and appropriate and worth celebrating that is none of those things. Now, Robbie Lashua made an observation during our staff meeting, and given that in his role as a pastor in the past, he did many weddings. But there were some weddings he could not perform because of the nature of the circumstances, all right? And what he said was, if there was a wedding that I felt in good conscience I couldn't perform, then in good conscience I couldn't attend either and celebrate it. And I thought that was a really insightful guideline. So if, 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 if you as a Christian person were a person of the cloth, vested with the powers to marry and bury, would you stand up and solemnize a transgender union? And if you wouldn't, then maybe that's a good indication that you shouldn't celebrate it either by attending. All right. So the first concern I had regarding Alistair Begg's recommendation was I thought it was a bad recommendation. And it seemed not only internally contradictory, as I pointed out, but it also seemed to me to be rather inconsistent with his general posture about things in his magnificent teaching of Scripture over the many, many years that he's done it as a pastor of that Parkside Church there in, I think it's in Cleveland, Ohio. So, gee, this caught a lot of people by surprise. What's he thinking? And now maybe this is just a one-off. You know, maybe this is just like, oh, he just made this mistake. Or maybe, maybe not. I don't, I don't know what to say about that. We'll see as time goes on. Um, but um, that's the first difficulty. I think it's bad counsel for the reasons that I gave. Secondly, the rationale is not a good one. We don't do anything 
not that he's suggesting it, but I'm just setting this up. We don't do anything just to be able to to get people to believe that we love them and maybe have them take a closer look at Jesus. If we're not representing the kind of ethic and truth that Jesus represents, why would people want to take a closer look at it? Or what would they be taking a closer look at? A compromised Christianity? I remember, and you might recall if you heard the interview with Justin Brierley a couple of months ago, his new book that came out called The Surprising Rebirth in Belief in God. And he's talking about all the people he interviewed over 17 years on Unbelievable there in London. And many of these people, very bright, intelligent atheists or secularists, agnostics or whatever, are many of them are, are moving towards Christianity, and some of them have become Christian. And the reason is, is because, because their worldview that they were adopting pretty much on an existential basis gave them nothing. When I talk about atheism in Street Smarts, as I introduce that first issue, uh, I said atheism is the nothing religion. It, because it, it, it gives you no answers of any kind for anything important. And uh, consequently, people who are, in fact, made in the image of God are going to be trying to embrace a worldview that's wildly counterintuitive to their native instincts as human beings. And this is what was happening, as Justin Brierley reported. It's an excellent book, by the way. I just want to reinforce it's really great. And very encouraging. But there was something that one of the individuals, who I think was an agnostic at the time he said this, he's moving away from atheism, in agnosticism, looking at Christianity, because he says, every value I hold is a Christian value. As, a, as somebody in support of liberal democracy, politically, these are values that are grounded in a Christian worldview. They're not grounded in atheism, you don't get human rights out of atheism. You get that out of some form of theism, historically, out of Christianity. And here's what he said then. He said, Christians, be sure that you stay weird. Be sure that you stay weird. And what he's meant is, it is classical Christianity with all its quote-unquote weirdness, that is the thing that is appealing as the truth, even though there are aspects of it that are odious to people who want to do their own thing. And what he sees Christians trying to do too often is to be like the rest of the world instead of telling the world that they ought to be like Christ. Stay weird. Don't give up the ghost, so to speak. Now, obviously, Alistair Begg is not giving up the ghost in any way, shape, or form. However, this way of thinking, I think, takes us down that road. Well, if we go, we'll show them our love, and they may be so surprised by our love that this is going to have an impact on them. And if we don't go, they're just going to think we're judgmental and bigoted and narrow-minded, or however he put it. Well, if if I need to do what's right before God, and that's it, to be weird in the best sense, and someone's reaction is, well, you're just bigoted. Well, okay. People said all kinds of bad things about Jesus. 
We just got to let the chips fall. That goes with the territory. What we want to be careful of, even though we're kind of maneuvering with wisdom and shrewdness in our culture, carefully taking our positions to do the least damage, at some point we just have to say no, and this is where we stand. Here I stand, I can do no other. Martin Luther, right? And this is what we have to do. We're going to stand. We, I can't go. I love you guys. We want to meet with you after the serve, after the event, a couple weeks down the line. Let's get together. Let's have dinner. Let's build our relationship. But I cannot celebrate that. Or in Alistair's words, I cannot countenance in any affirming way the choices that transgender person has made in their life. So, I think that the advice was wrong, mistaken, and I think that a bad advice, and I think that it was a bad rationale. Okay, but now I want to talk about Alistair Begg, who gave the bad advice, in my opinion, based on a bad rationale, in my opinion. (laughs) I think Alistair Begg is a great guy. I will continue listening to his preaching because he's a great preacher, and I've learned so much from him. An important principle, not just in the content of his preaching, but the way he preaches. His principle is just this, read and explain. (laughs) I like that. This is the way he goes about doing his assessments scripturally. He's going to read it and then explain it. When he's done that, he's going to go to the next section, read it and explain it. Wow, that's great. Nothing buttery, nothing fancy. Just doing his job. I love that. Okay. And the takeaway is really good, bright, smart people can sometimes say really stupid things. <laughs> Doesn't mean they're stupid. It means what they said was dumb. But they're still good people. Guess what? I've said a few doozies in my own life. We all do. I have no reason to take this any more than just a one-off. I have no reason to take this any more than 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 just, you know, a, a, you know, a, a, maybe a poorly thought-through response. He's not on a slippery slope. He's not going in the wrong direction, and that was suggested a little bit by uh, Michael Grant. Um, nope, nope, nope. I, I just no. Should somebody talk to him? Yeah, sure especially somebody who kind of understands what's at stake in this kind of thing. Most of your theologians, frankly, are not going to—well, they may not see that. But people who are, who are watching the culture and, the, and the, the church's role in the culture and their impact, and, and I, thought, I think this is definitely true of James White— and John Harris, as far as what I heard, and both, like I said, gave very charitable assessments here. Not mean-spirited at all. But they see, yeah, this is not a good thing. This is not help. And one thing that Alan said, uh, after actually going to a same-sex wedding for the same reasons that were suggested by Alistair Begg, is that, first of all, it, it, it didn't seem to um, have a salutary impact on anybody there. Nobody even really cared. And even the ma- the principles. It wasn't like, oh, you really love us a lot. That's great. Gee, maybe I should think about Jesus. No, nothing like that happened. 
Part of the reason is because that event, everything is cheering that event, those people in that circumstance on. I mean, everybody's just think when you, you sit at a wedding and people are clanging their glasses. What are you clanging their glasses for? So they can get the bride and bride or groom and groom in this case or the who knows to kiss. Everything about that is meant to celebrate. And uh, that was one of the experiences that really sealed this way of thinking for Alan. That we're not going to do this anymore. And for good reason. And I think that's true. Now, I know the point has come up when you say transgender, it's not, ex- we don't know that it's a gay, a gay wedding. It may not be a gay wedding. You may have a male and a female. I understand. My point is not that a person should not attend a transgender wedding because it is a de facto gay wedding, because it's not in many cases. I'm saying you should stay away from, you should not celebrate it because it's a transgender wedding. Because it's a celebration of that thing that is a distortion or a corruption or even maybe a mockery from God's perspective of a wonderful institution that God himself established. All right? But always keep in mind, everybody's going to do something silly, dumb, stupid, sooner or later, no matter how good they are all the rest of the time. So keep that in mind. And by the way, you may have to keep that in mind on my behalf sometime. So this is just a self-serving, I guess, uh, because I need to have things overlooked as well, just as you will. All right, let's take a break, and we'll come back when I return on Stand to Reason. Would you like a Stand to Reason speaker to speak at your church or event? Greg, Alan, Tim, John, and I, Robbie Lashua, are available both in person and online. Just email booking at str.org to schedule us today. We can address a wide array of topics, from bioethics, gender issues and science, to theology, philosophy, and how to respond to other worldviews, all from a biblical perspective. Whether it's a Sunday sermon, Zoom conference, or YouTube live event, our skilled and engaging speakers can be there either physically or virtually, with the goal of equipping Christians to effectively influence the culture for Christ. To read our bios and learn more about the topics we cover, visit str.org. Then email booking at str.org to schedule Greg, Alan, Tim, John, or me, Robbie, today. Have you ever wondered how Stand to Reason is able to produce fresh, accessible content each week? We rely on generous donors so that we can provide you with the tools and tactics you need to be an effective ambassador for Christ. If you've benefited from this podcast or any of our donor-provided resources, including our apps, blog posts, articles, and short videos, consider making a financial contribution to Stand to Reason today. Just visit str.org slash donate to show your financial support. It has been an honor providing you with a host of free resources for more than 27 years to help you give voice to the Christian worldview. Help us continue by making a financial gift today at str.org slash donate.
All right, back at you here. Greg Kogel, your host, and made a reference uh, last segment to the uh, Reality Student Apologetics Conference coming up. And we are uh, midstream here in our season. We've had three of them already, all sellouts, and uh, one in Southern California, one in Seattle, and one in Minneapolis. Now we're going to Dallas. Now, Dallas, that church, Cottonwood, is that right? Cottonwood in, uh, I think it's called Cottonwood. Did I get that right or wrong? Anyway, that church, Cottonwood Creek, right. Mine was kind of the abbreviated form, Cottonwood Creek. And uh, North Dallas, they actually kind of knocked down some walls and remodeled a little bit to make room for their church growth and also in with reality in mind. Okay, so now, um, even with that, we have 2,128 signed up for an event that's over four weeks away. There's only 300 seats left in the main auditorium, and there's overflow for 400. So there's 700 till we max, 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 and we have to turn people away. Okay, well, that's a great success. We're thrilled. <clears throat> and I think that's what's going to happen. If you want to sign up for the Reality Conference, uh, you can do so by going to realityapologetics.com. That's the one in Dallas. And uh, the one in uh, that follows it in March, that's Dallas, February 23rd and 24th. And then in March, in Pennsylvania, Philadelphia, the 22nd and 23rd, I think we already have, let's see, uh, the early bird ends on Friday. So that's why I'm saying it now. This podcast is coming out this particular hour early, so... Gives you a couple days to sign up. We got uh, 504 people signed up, and this is a smaller venue. And last year at this time, we had 323. That means the numbers are really popping. And because it's smaller, you want to get on board sooner. All the details are there, realityapologetics.com. And finally, in Georgia, at Augusta, April 19th and 20th, we'll uh, be having our final one for this season. So uh, it's a great event, and uh, I hope you can make it. We're going to fill them all up. That's my goal. Uh, we're going to open calls right now, open mic calls, and these are calls that people leave on the answering machine, so to speak. <clears throat> we just call them open mic instead of open answering machine because it sounds more sophisticated. Um, but basically, if you have a question that you'd like to ask me and get my feedback on and um, you don't want to wait online, which a lot of people just simply can't, you can go to our homepage, and under podcasts, there's a link to live broadcasts. And when you go there, you can follow the prompts, and you could leave your question. And you can also simply dial up um, for your open mic calls, 857-DIAL-STR, 857-DIAL-STR. Now, I hate those words. They always get me confused because i got to find the letters. So let me give you the numbers, 857 857- Three four two five seven eight seven three four two five seven eight seven area code eight five seven. So uh, give us a call, leave your message, and then you'll get in the list of callers whose questions we have. I want to go right now to a question about Jeremiah thirty one. This is Randall Beck. Got Randy or oh, Randall? Okay, let's hear what you got to say, Randall. Hey, Greg, it's Randy Beck in Collierville, Tennessee. Hmm. I uh, just wanted to thank you. I've grown in my hermeneutic skills through your teaching, particularly as it's related to promises in God's Word. 
and how it's so important to first evaluate who the promise is made to and from that determine how it applies to my life and walk. Great. So carrying this over into my study on the new covenant, when I look at the go-to passages used so often to teach about the new covenant, Jeremiah 31, 31, and also Ezekiel 36, 22 through 28, I mm-hmm. see the opening words. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And so the first thing I ask myself is, who is this directed to? Exactly who is the house of Israel and the house of Judah? On its face, it sounds simply like it's national Israel or perhaps the remnant of true believers God has preserved within Israel. Does that include me, a New Testament believer, somehow? If so, how? Mm -hmm. Seems to me like everyone quoting this verse routinely glosses over this. Either they're getting something and I'm not. I've never heard this addressed in any teaching I can find. I must be missing something obvious. Thank you. Well, thank you, Randy. It's a really good question, especially in light of my concerns about how a passage just a couple of chapters earlier is used, Jeremiah twenty nine eleven, where this passage is part of a letter written to a particular group of people about a particular historical circumstance, which we have Daniel responding to later, kind of affirming the the um the what's the word I'm looking for this constrained application that or limited application that this passage has uh for the readers okay and then we just page over to Jeremiah 31 and verse 31 which is this famous passage where the new covenant is being introduced for the first time. It's repeated there in Ezekiel, as you mentioned, Randy. And it starts out the same way. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers the day I took them out of the land of, uh, uh, to bring them uh, out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke. That's the Mosaic Covenant. Okay, so now what? By what rights are we taking the promises made to Israel of the New Covenant and making application to Gentiles? Fair question. This is where the bigger picture comes in to inform our understanding of particular passages. Okay. Keep in mind, now, when we see the provisions of the New Covenant, we see in Jeremiah 31, and also when you compare it with the Ezekiel passage, we see full and complete personal forgiveness. That is, the provisions of the New Covenant make the Old Covenant obsolete. There is no longer the continuing of the offering of blood of bulls and goats that could never take away sin, because there is one sacrifice that is given for one time that brings salvation. Okay? And so, um, the larger picture, though, is that the nation of Israel was to be a conduit of some kind of grace and blessing for the entire world. Where'd that come from? From the beginning. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. There we have the Abrahamic covenant, and Abraham is commissioned by God as a man to be the source of a nation that would come forth from his loins that God would use as a blessing to the rest of the world. So we know that there, when we read that and then see God's working, building up this nation, 
that the blessing and the purposes of God's blessing are not just for Israel. It isn't a period end of issue. They are to be a conduit to the rest of the world. Obviously, early on, we don't have much detail about what that looks like. But as time goes on, we can see how this unfolds. And the Mosaic Covenant is a covenant that does a number of things. One of it is it fashions the nation of Israel. It provides political structure and moral structure and religious structure for that people. It makes them into a defined people before God, okay? Problems, though, is a conditional covenant. And they broke the conditions, and so therefore they got the wrath instead of the blessing, okay? As we move through the salvation history of Scripture, in other words, we see how God is unfolding little by little through time a plan to finally accomplish that thing which he um, promised Abraham he would do, that the, the seed of Abraham would be a blessing to all the goyim. That's the word, the Gentiles. That's in Genesis 12, verse 3. All the nations. We see now the giving of this additional thing. The old is done away with. They broke the old, Jeremiah says, and God is going to give them a new covenant they cannot break. Who's he giving it to? The Jews. Now, here's the question. Does it mean that it is only restricted to the Jews? When we go back a couple of pages to Jeremiah 29, 11, all of that language is clearly restricted to the Jews in a very precise historical set of circumstances, which, as I mentioned, 70 years later, Daniel figures out and then prays this prayer in Daniel 9 to initiate the fulfillment of that promise. When you read the whole thing, there's no question that it is for those Jews, and given the nature of the captivity, it is only for those Jews. It isn't to be expanded to anyone else. This, however, is a new covenant with the Jews that has expanded application. Now, I don't I have the Ezekiel passage right here in front of me, um, but um, the details we see in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, they come up again later. And, you know, Randall, uh, Randy, the, these, your concern was also a concern of the early Jews. I'm, sur- I'm sorry, the, the Jews of Jesus' time, because they were thinking, this, all these goodies are for us. But, of course, that was a misunderstanding. And you can see through Old Testament texts, as time goes on, that God's heart is not just for the Jews to get rescued by this covenant that provides for their complete personal forgiveness of sin, but for that to be extended to everyone. When Solomon um, built the temple, there's the court of the Gentiles. And uh, where was it? The nativity um, accounts. My, my, my temple is to be a place of prayer for all the nations. Jesus, then you see, reaching out, not just to the Jews, but also to Tyre and Sidon, which is up the coast, and those are Gentile areas, and he's talking to the Syrophoenician woman. And 
Uh, and then you have him going to Decapolis, the ten cities, and the areas on the uh, on the east of the the, the northeast of Israel and along uh, that shore of the Sea of Galilee, where there's a bunch of pigs that get demon possessed and charged into the water. This isn't Jewish land; it's Gentile land. So why is God go- Jesus going there? Because and he says this quite a number of times in his own discourses: God's love for the non-Jew. All right. Paul, then again, to the Jew first, and then the Gentile. But both are in view, okay? And so what's interesting then, and this ought to seal it for you, and and I realize if you just got Jeremiah 31 and the Ezekiel passage, well, you're not sure where to go with this. But when the other authors of Scripture demonstrate that this particular blessing for the nation of Israel is to be shared with Gentiles— then we realize that this is not simply applying to them. The Gentiles are grafted in, says in the book of Romans, okay? It's a Jewish covenant, no question, but Gentiles get to benefit. And by the way, the Jews that don't fulfill the requirements of that covenant get get snipped off. They're gone, okay? This is the way Paul talks about it in Romans 9, 10, 11, right in there somewhere. And so, uh, Jesus at the Last Supper. This is the this is the, the the blood of the new covenant. And so, he at the Last Supper, you have Jesus um, announcing the initiation of the covenant, and it is formally launched. Because remember, part of the new covenant is the giving of the Spirit individually to people as a permanent possession. On Pentecost Sunday, that Holy Spirit descends upon the apostles who are Jewish, but notice that when they give the justification to the crowds of what's going on, Peter says, he cited the prophecy for Joel, I will pour out my Spirit on all peoples. So what we have initially introduced in Jeremiah 31 and also the Ezekiel passage as a covenant for the Jews, we later learn that it's just it's not just for them. It's for the Jews first, but this is the thing that God is going to do through the Jews that is going to ultimately be the blessing upon all the goyim, all the nations. And of course, that's how other prophets like Joel, I just mentioned, play it out. And this is how it's played out in the life of Jesus in his ministry and reaching out to Gentiles, and this is played out on Pentecost Sunday. And, and, and then, of course, soon after that in the book of Acts, then we have the Samaritans receiving the Holy Spirit, just as the apostles. And then we have, in Acts chapter 10, we have Cornelius, the Gentile, receiving the Spirit, just as the apostles. Oh, so then, this gift of the Spirit, this gift of forgiveness, is open to all they conclude, no, duh, that's been part of the program from the very beginning. Okay. So what's unique about this circumstance and gives us the latitude of expanding this to all these Gentiles, even though it started with the Jews, is because the prophets and Jesus and the apostles do the same thing. They make this broad application of this passage to everyone. And so that changes things significantly. Okay. By the way, I'm glad that uh, this is this is uh, an issue that you brought up, Randy, 
because what you're doing is trying to be careful to apply these rules consistently, uh, these hermeneutical rules. <clears throat> but um, one of the things I pointed out, I just want to underscore it. I just have a few more minutes here before the hour's up, so I'll just say a little bit more about this issue, is that the historical circumstances in Jeremiah 29 and the words that are spoken there are very different than what we see in Jeremiah 31. In Jeremiah 29, we have a very precise set of historical circumstances, which these circumstances historically are the focus of the Word. Given these circumstances that you're facing, I am going to um, act in a certain period of time, 70 years hence, to bring you back to the plan, to the place I promised you, because, and then the famous verse, I know the plans I have for you, not for welfare and not, uh, and prosperity, to give you a future and a hope. Now, these, of course, are the Jews that Jeremiah is speaking to that have gone to Babylon, not the ones that stayed in Jerusalem against God's command. For them, he's got a different word. And that comes a couple of verses later. There, there, there's no prosperity for them. They're going to be getting judgment, and it's going to be bad. But, uh, but notice in that Jeremiah passage, he says, "I will fulfill my good word to you." Now that was a trigger to me when I saw that passage. That he is talking, he's making reference to something that has already been said. I will fulfill the good word. Well, when did he give the good word? that he was going to fulfill. And it just occurred to me, came to mind, I bet you it's in Deuteronomy 28, 29, and 30. And indeed, when I went back there, at the end of the second time the law is given, Deuteronomy, there are conditionals, blessings and cursings. And if you, if you do good, blessing. If you do bad, cursing. And then the text says, after both happen, the blessing and the curse, here's what's going to happen. I am going to show mercy on you, and I'm going to bring you back to the land that from which I've scattered you. And it turns out that the language there is almost precisely and exactly the same language that we see in Jeremiah 29, uh, 11 and following, right in there. It's all the same language. Okay, <clears throat> and so um, it's clear then that this is a very restrained, restricted set of circumstances to which he's speaking. When we go a couple chapters later, there is a good news that's given that you're not going to fall into this same kind of thing again, where where the Mosaic law is the thing that you're going to be judged by. I'm going to do a brand new thing with you, Israel. It just turned out that that brand new thing that God was going to do with Israel was intended by God to be expanded, not just uh, to Israel, but to the rest of the world. This was God's plan for salvation for the world. Now, I have a course that I've taught, and I used to teach it at Hope Chapel in Hermosa Beach, long before Stand to Reason, at the Hope Chapel Ministry Institute. It's called the Bible Fast Forward. It was the class I was teaching when I met Melinda Penner so many years ago. 
And uh, we now have that teaching that I have refurbished a number of years ago and taught in eight segments, eight 50-minute segments. And there's about a 150-page syllabus that goes with it. In other words, the entire course is all there for you. And you just got to print it out, okay? And if, uh, I highly recommend that you get that series. So, Randy, this is for you, too. Get that series, The Bible Fast Forward. Watch it with your family, with the Bible study. Watch it by yourself. And what it's going to give you is it's going to give you a look at the coherence of the entire story. It's kind of like the story of reality, the book I wrote, but in much finer detail. If you've read the book, you know I go from God to man to Jesus. Well, man and the fall of man is in Genesis chapter 3, and Jesus is the, is in the New Testament, the first part of the New Testament. Well, what happens in between? That's what the Bible fast-forward is meant to do. It's to fill in those theological blanks so you see the unfolding of God's plan for salvation, which the pinnacle of is the new covenant that Jesus brought and initiated and inaugurated, and now we offer to the world, Jew and Gentile alike. Okay, friends, that's it for this show. Thank you for joining me. Greg Kokel here for Stand a Reason. Give them heaven. Bye-bye now. <laughs>